0: Hello and welcome to the very first episode of Anecdotal, the podcast where I discuss how the gender bias in healthcare is costing women our lives and try to motivate women to speak up for themselves and demand better health outcomes. My name's Victoria. I'm not a doctor. I'm just a woman who is sick of hearing story after story about women being dismissed by their doctors and who believes that we deserve a better healthcare system that understands and works for women. Until then, I plan to call attention to some past and present failures and the occasional success in women's health, with the aim of empowering women to listen to their bodies, get informed, and above all, advocate for their medical outcomes. On today's episode, I'm going to be discussing a tragedy that took place around the world over 60 years ago, and which involves incompetence, fraud, and ethical failures across virtually every type of medical institution— from pharmaceutical companies, to individual doctors, to the government organizations meant to protect patients. I'll also be exploring some of the laws and processes that exist today to protect consumers from potentially dangerous drugs. But before I dive in, I just want to touch on a piece of very recent news that not only relates to today's topic, but also does a very good job of illustrating just how little we still know about women's bodies. Just over a month ago, an article was published identifying for the first time a potential cause for severe nausea and vomiting in early pregnancy. The finding relates to a particularly severe form of morning sickness known as hyperemesis gravidarium, or HG, which takes place in about 2-3% of pregnancies and can be life-threatening for the mother and fetus. Now, if it weren't crazy enough that we're only just finding out a potential cause and potential remedies for morning sickness and pregnancy, which some would argue is one of the most important processes for the continuation of our species, the context behind this discovery makes it clear just how much work we still have to do before women are taken seriously in medicine. So the scientist leading this research, the geneticist Dr. Marlena Feijo, became interested in this topic after her own experience with severe morning sickness, which actually led to miscarriage in her second pregnancy. When she got back to the lab and indicated that she wanted to understand the reasons behind severe morning sickness, she was laughed at by her boss and had no luck finding a mentor who would support her in this research. So she had to actually conduct most of the research on her own for several years Because the idea that we should understand and try to find a solution for a morning sickness was just not taken seriously. Now, I don't want to just be completely negative about this, because this is objectively great news for women. And this discovery could mean that a lot of women will be saved a lot of suffering and a lot of lives could actually be saved. It's just frustrating that it took this long. Now, I'm going to dive into today's topic, but before I do, I'll just leave you with a comment I read online in response to this news story. So this person said, It's too late for me to have any more children, but it would make me very happy if nobody else had to go through what I went through. 50% is the sickness, and 50% was the willful bullshit and dismissal by those around me that made me certain never to place my life in anyone's hands again. It's always bittersweet when these sort of stories come out because it's great news that future women will be spared the suffering that previous generations went through. But you always wish that these changes had come about sooner. This is definitely the case in the story that I'm going to discuss today, which was ultimately responsible for the creation of many of the laws that govern the testing and approval of pharmaceuticals around the world today. All this and more on today's episode of Anecdotal. Thalidomide was recommended to pregnant women to help with anxiety, insomnia and morning sickness All over the country expectant mothers were assured by doctors and chemists and advertisements that this drug was perfectly safe for them and for their baby. So this week's topic is the thalidomide tragedy, and what you've just heard is the voice of Prime Minister of Australia Anthony Albanese speaking to Parliament as part of the nation's official apology to Australian thalidomide survivors just a few months ago actually in November 2023. Now I wanted to start the episode with that clip partly because I am based in Australia and I have a feeling that some of the people listening to this will be based in Australia as well but mainly because I think it serves as a good reminder of just how recently this took place. If you watch the footage from the Prime Minister's remarks, you'll see that there are a number of thalidomide survivors within the audience, and I just think it's important as we discuss this topic to remember that even though it took place over 60 years ago, there are still many survivors seeking justice and recognitions of their experiences around the world. I believe there are around 150 thalidomide survivors living in Australia today. And it's hard to know the global number for reasons that I'll touch on a little bit later in the episode. But I do think it's just important to recognize and to remember that for many people in the world, this is still a very real issue that impacts their lives and the lives of their loved ones to this day. Now, as I've planned the podcast and started putting together the first few episodes, I've gotten a bit annoyed with myself at times for picking this particular topic for my very first episode because it's just such a heavy one and it can be a little bit difficult to talk about at times. But ultimately, I felt it actually made a lot of sense as a first episode because it does a really good job of laying out some of the historical context and some of the legal framework around how drugs are developed and tested and approved for sale around the world. It's also a topic that's far back enough in history that a lot of people have spoken with about it in the past few weeks and months. We're not very familiar with the topic. I know I wasn't super familiar with it myself. I actually came across it while I was researching a different episode. And while I knew that there had been a drug sometime in the last century that had later been found to cause birth defects, I had no idea that it had been specifically marketed to pregnant women, and I certainly didn't know anything about the extent of the cover-ups that took place so that companies could continue to profit off of this drug, even after it became clear that the drug was responsible for a multitude of issues." And most of all, I just felt that this would make a really great first topic because it does a really good job of illustrating what it can look like when individual women's experiences are dismissed by their doctors and how the cumulative impact of those individual dismissals can ultimately spiral into what in this case became one of the worst medical tragedies ever. So the story of thalidomide begins with the founding of a pharmaceutical company called Grunenthal in 1946 in Germany, which already is a pretty suspicious time and place to be starting any story. And sure enough, you don't have to look very far before you find some pretty significant Nazi ties to Grunenthal. I'll touch a bit more on that later. But one pretty notable example is a man named Otto Ambros, who served as chairman of Grunenthal's advisory committee and had previously served time in prison after being convicted of mass murder in the Nuremberg trials. The man who invented thalidomide, Dr. Heinrich Muchter, found himself in Germany in 1946 after escaping arrest in Poland, where he had been accused of conducting medical experiments on concentration camp prisoners. Now, I'm going to rewind a little bit because I think in order to understand the thalidomide story, it's important to understand a bit of the history of pharmaceuticals, particularly from around the early 1800s to World War II. I think it's easy to forget that just a few hundred years ago, the only medicines that people could access were those that were directly found in nature. So essentially, plants and animals believed to have medicinal properties, such as opium, which could be directly extracted from the poppy plant. Now, of course, some of these remedies worked, some of them didn't. And crucially, there were no laws in place requiring that these drugs be proven to be safe or effective. So starting in the 1800s, things start to change pretty rapidly, starting in around 1804 with the isolation of morphine from opium. This became the first time that an active ingredient had been isolated from a medicinal plant. In 1832, chloral hydrate is synthesized, becoming the first synthetic drug, although its sedative properties would not be discovered until 1869. It's actually still available today in some countries as a sedative hypnotic. By the end of the 19th century, the massive market potential of pharmaceuticals is starting to come to light. And in 1897, aspirin is synthesized for the first time, becoming one of the most successful drugs of all time and bringing us back into the 20th century. Around the 1920s and 30s, the antibiotic properties of penicillin are beginning to be identified and researched, and penicillin ultimately goes on to have massive impacts in World War II, limiting the number of deaths and amputations among allied forces, and saving an estimated 12-15% to of lives during the war. The story of penicillin ends up becoming really pivotal to the thalidomide story, and that's because the importance of penicillin in World War II led to a massive push from government. To increase production of the drug. So, a lot of companies that didn't specialize in pharmaceuticals suddenly found themselves producing penicillin in order to support in the war effort. We actually saw a recent example of this just a few years ago in COVID when hand sanitizer was in short supply and breweries and distillers began to manufacture it because they had a lot of the right equipment and expertise to be able to do so. So one company that pivoted into penicillin production in World War II was actually a Scottish company called Distillers, which at the time specialized in producing alcoholic beverages and began producing penicillin in 1942 at the government's request. I've mentioned a few times that at this point, the laws in place to protect consumers from the growing number of pharmaceuticals on the market were basically non-existent. And that was definitely the case in the US and Australia. Until about 1938. In 1938, the U.S. passes the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act of 1938 in response to the deaths of about a hundred people who had consumed a compound called elixir sulfanilamide, which was later found to contain a highly toxic solvent that's now largely used in antifreeze. One of the scientists involved in researching the elixir sulfanilamide incident and understanding why those people had died was Dr. Frances Oldham Kelsey, and her research ended up being pivotal in the passing of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act of 1938. And Dr. Kelsey actually ends up becoming very relevant to the thalidomide story just a few decades later. So prior to 1938, Drug manufacturers in the U.S. had pretty minimal obligations to test and prove the efficacy and safety of their drugs, and they could basically just do whatever they wanted. So this new law comes in in 1938, and what it does is that it requires drug manufacturers to prove the safety of their drugs. So they now have to run animal tests on their drugs prior to actually putting them on the market and submit their findings to the Food and Drug Administration, or the FDA, which would then decide whether or not to allow those drugs on the U.S. market. The law also requires that drugs are tested for efficacy, meaning that manufacturers could no longer just claim that drugs were able to do things that they couldn't actually do. I'm not going to touch on every country's legal framework, but I do just want to talk a bit about what was going on in Australia at the time, because around the same time that the U.S. is passing its first law to deal with pharmaceuticals, Australia is actually looking to do the same. So in 1937 and 1938, Two acts are introduced in the Australian Senate seeking to regulate therapeutic goods much in the same way that the U.S. was doing at the time, so essentially requiring that drugs be tested for efficacy and that they are safely packaged and free from contamination. Unfortunately, these two acts were never actually proclaimed or passed in Australia due to the disruption from the war, and in the post-war years, these laws are not immediately revisited because... They simply weren't a priority. So it's not actually until the second half of the 20th century that Australia begins passing some really robust laws to deal with pharmaceuticals. So going back to the founding of Grunenthal in 1946, this was a time where the pharmaceutical industry had begun to show a lot of promise in terms of profitability, but it was still an industry that was largely unregulated in much of the world. It was also around this time that barbiturates had exploded in popularity and were being widely used by the general public as sedatives to treat insomnia and anxiety. So when people claim that previous generations didn't struggle with anxiety, just remind them of the wild success of barbiturates in the 1930s and 40s. By the mid-1940s, there were growing concerns about the safety of barbiturates, with people particularly worried about the risk of overdose and addiction. So the sedative industry was ripe for disruption and on the lookout for a safe and non-addictive alternative to the sedatives that were currently on the market. And that is where thalidomide comes in. Now, there are varying theories as to when and how thalidomide was developed. I touched earlier on the really harrowing background of the man who invented thalidomide, who had previously tested other drugs on concentration camp prisoners. And some sources have speculated that thalidomide may have been developed prior to the founding of Grunenthal and may have a darker history than we realize. I wasn't able to find any conclusive evidence to support that theory and to complicate matters further. A lot of the documentation dealing with the development of thalidomide was lost or otherwise disappeared. So it's likely we'll never really know how and under what circumstances thalidomide was developed. What we do know is that Grunenthal began selling thalidomide in West Germany in 1957 as an over-the-counter alternative to barbiturates that was marketed as astonishingly safe and impossible to overdose on. For the first year that the drug is on the market, it is aggressively marketed as being completely safe, non-toxic, and able to be taken in quantities far larger than the recommended dose. Once the drug's been on the market for about a year and gained widespread popularity, Grunenthal enlists a gynecologist to report on the safety of the drug when used in pregnancy. And in 1958, that same gynecologist reports that there were no side effects observed in mothers or babies when thalidomide was used. So the execs at Grunenthal are, of course, thrilled with this news, and they immediately begin reaching out to tens of thousands of doctors to let them know that thalidomide can safely be used in pregnancy. The only problem was that the study that was being referenced by Grunenthal, the one conducted by the gynecologist that they had enlisted, had actually failed to administer thalidomide to any pregnant women at all. The drug had only been given to postpartum women and women who were breastfeeding. Not a single pregnant woman was given the drug as part of the study that later went on to justify the use of thalidomide in pregnancy around the world. Over time, the drug was promoted for a number of uses, including for help with insomnia, anxiety, as a general sedative, painkiller, and most famously, for relief from nausea and vomiting in the early stages of pregnancy. Around the same time that they're seeking out dodgy studies to justify the use of thalidomide in pregnancy, Grunenthal is also looking to make some money overseas. So the company begins seeking out licensees around the world who in turn begin manufacturing and distributing the drug in their own countries under their own brand names, with Grunenthal, of course, raking in massive royalties from all of the sales. In the UK, the company that begins manufacturing and distributing thalidomide is a company called Distillers, which I actually mentioned earlier in the context of penicillin. They were one of the companies that had previously specialized in making alcoholic beverages and had begun producing penicillin in World War II. After the war, they realized that there's money to be made in pharmaceuticals, so they keep the pharmaceutical branch of the company open and begin looking for more opportunities to make a profit in that space. So in 1958, Distillers strikes a deal with Grunenthal and begins manufacturing and distributing thalidomide in the UK under the brand name distoval And two years later, they begin selling Distival in Australia as well. It doesn't take long for Grunenthal to find licensees around the world, and pretty soon they're selling thalidomide in 46 different countries. One really notable exception was actually the U.S., where Grunenthal actually did find a licensee, a company called the William S. Merrill Company, but where the drug was ultimately never sold due to one FDA employee who single-handedly prevented the approval of thalidomide after becoming suspicious by the lackluster clinical trial documentation that was shared by Grunenthal. That FDA employee was actually Dr. Frances Oldham Kelsey, a woman I mentioned earlier in the context of her research supporting the Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act of 1938. And just as a bit of a sidebar here, Dr. Kelsey would ultimately go on to be honored by President John F. Kennedy for her heroic efforts in preventing thalidomide from hitting the U.S. market, And the prevailing narrative has been that the U.S. emerged from the tragedy unscathed, but the reality is that Grunenthal and the William S. Merrill Company actually took advantage of the lax regulations in the U.S. at the time to distribute the drug directly to doctors under the guise of running clinical trials. And ultimately, while the impact was not as severe as in other countries, the U.S. did have victims of thalidomide who are still seeking justice to this day. Now, in the interest of time I'm not going to go into that story specifically but one of the books that I read as part of my research for this episode is a book by Jennifer Vanderbess called Wonder Drug the Hidden Victims of America's Secret Thalidomide Scandal and I just cannot recommend it enough it was one of the most gripping and interesting books that I have read in a very long time And it goes into immense detail into the story of Dr. Kelsey and thalidomide more broadly. And so if you're interested in the topic of thalidomide and you want to learn more, I truly cannot recommend this book enough. The final thing I'll say on that is that I was just blown away by how many of the heroes in this story were women, particularly in a time where women were so heavily underrepresented both in government and in medicine. Back to the story now, in 1960, Grunenthal is now selling thalidomide in dozens of countries around the world, including Australia, and in 1960, a potential risk of thalidomide is made public for the first time when a Scottish doctor named Dr. Leslie Florence publishes a letter in the British Medical Journal linking the drug to nerve damage. And while this was the first time that the public was hearing about this risk, it certainly was not the first time that Grunenthal was. In fact, doctors in Germany and abroad had reached out to Grunenthal since at least 1958 to advise of severe symptoms observed in patients taking thalidomide. The symptoms included balance disturbances, warmth in extremities, and trembling hands, all indicative of a condition called peripheral neuropathy. As these reports came in between 1958 and 1960, Grunenthal responded to each report with surprise, claiming they'd not had any similar reports and acting like it was the first time they were hearing about any of this. In fact, evidence suggests the company had data suggesting nerve damage dating as far back as their original clinical trials before the drug had even gone on the market. As the reports continued to mount and it became apparent that claims would soon be made public, Grunenthal updated their labeling to acknowledge some risk with prolonged use, but assuring that any reactions would subside upon withdrawal of the drug. So Grunenthal manages to calm some of the concerns around peripheral neuropathy, but things are about to get a whole lot worse. In 1961, two doctors on opposite sides of the world reached the same conclusion— that thalidomide is responsible for an epidemic in miscarriages and birth defects. In Australia, it's Sydney obstetrician Dr. William McBride who sounds the alarm in June. He has been trialing the drug for distillers, and upon delivering a number of babies with extremely rare malformations, he determines that thalidomide must be responsible. Dr. McBride successfully convinces the women's hospital in Sydney to stop prescribing thalidomide to pregnant women, and he writes a letter to the Lancet describing his findings and asking whether any doctors around the world have witnessed the same. This letter would become the first public document connecting thalidomide to birth defects. He alerts distillers of his suspicions, but the drug remains on sale. Halfway around the world, German obstetrician Wiedekind Lenz Contacts Grunenthal with the same suspicions in November. Denying the link, Grunenthal refuses to remove the drug from the market until later that month when the media finally reports on the disaster. Part of the reason that these doctors were so confident that something systemic was going on was because the sort of birth defects that they were observing were extremely rare. One of the conditions they were observing which is now one of the most widely associated with the thalidomide tragedy, was a condition called phocomelia, where babies are born with shortened or absent limbs. They also observed damage to the ears and eyes, sensory impairment, and damage to internal organs. As I've mentioned, phocomelia is extremely rare, so for the majority, if not all of these doctors, this was the first time in their career that they were seeing a single case of phocomelia, let alone multiple cases within the span of a few weeks or months. So it was really undeniable that something serious was going on and that it could not possibly be a coincidence. Part of what's so frustrating about the story is that if there had been better communication between doctors and hospitals around that time, it really would have been undeniable that something systemic was going on. But at least in the beginning, a lot of these cases were popping up individually and were being written off as isolated incidents. One of the really tragic things that I read about in my research for the episode was that a lot of families whose babies were impacted by thalidomide were told that their babies would not survive and that they should effectively just give them up for adoption and forget that anything had happened. In the case of Germany, where a large proportion of the babies impacted by thalidomide were born, it's important to remember that this was going on just a few years after the Nazi regime and that there still remained a lot of shame and stigma when it came to disabilities. So there was very little awareness of the uptick in birth defects that had been observed around the world, and many parents were simply being told that their experiences were God's will and that they were isolated incidents. At the time, there were effectively no avenues for doctors and hospitals to report side effects from drugs in a way that would get aggregated and analyzed for patterns, so tens of thousands of pregnancies around the world were affected before anyone could make the link to thalidomide. Looking at some of the individual cases, it's hard to believe that Grunenthal didn't put two and two together sooner. The first baby known to have been born with the impacts of thalidomide was a baby born in 1956 to the wife of a Grunenthal employee who had given her thalidomide in pregnancy. One of the scariest things about the story is that in many cases, the mothers of the babies that were born with birth defects from thalidomide had only ever taken one tablet of thalidomide in pregnancy. One tablet was enough to cause permanent and very severe damage to the child, but part of what made it so challenging to establish this link was that there was only a very small window in pregnancy during which taking thalidomide would result in birth defects. So there were many cases where women had taken thalidomide in pregnancy and their babies had turned out just fine. The critical period was between days 20 and 36 after fertilization, so really it was just a small window of just over two weeks. But because this window overlapped so heavily with the time in pregnancy that women tend to see the worst morning sickness, and because the drug had been so heavily marketed as a remedy for morning sickness, that narrow window of exposure was the exact time that so many women took even just one thalidomide pill that would change everything. One of the most interesting things that I learned about when preparing this episode is that after the link to thalidomide and birth defects was established, doctors could pinpoint when a woman had taken thalidomide in pregnancy almost to the day based on the type of birth defects that a baby presented with. For example, the earliest damage occurring between days 20 and 23 would be the absence of the external ear, and thumb damage would appear between days 23 and 27. I mentioned earlier that Dr. William McBride, the Sydney obstetrician who was ultimately the first person to publicly sound the alarm about the teratogenic impacts of thalidomide, had been distributing the drug as part of a trial for distillers, which was the company that was selling thalidomide under the brand name Distoval in the UK and Australia. Part of what's so upsetting about the story is that in many cases, the women who were given the drug were not aware that the drug was being given as part of a trial, and that its safety in pregnancy had not yet been proven. There was really no reason for anyone to doubt the drug's safety in pregnancy, especially when you consider how much of the marketing for the drug was centered around its extraordinary safety, particularly in pregnancy. The doctors who distributed the drug trusted that it had been thoroughly tested for safety, and the women who took the drug from their doctors trusted that their doctors wouldn't give them a drug that could cause such devastating effects in pregnancy. At the time, many countries did not require that doctors disclose that they were distributing drugs as part of a clinical trial. Many women, particularly in the US, were given thalidomide in often unmarked containers, making it very difficult to know whether they had taken the drug once its impacts on pregnancy were known. Once the news came out, this left many pregnant women fearing the worst partway through their pregnancies with no way to know whether their child would be impacted until their birth. Even after having babies with focomelia who had clearly been impacted by thalidomide, many women found it difficult to prove that they had been given the drug as the drug had often been handed out with no labeling and doctors were reluctant to be associated with the tragedy that was all over the news. One particularly frustrating story I read about in Jennifer Vanderbess's book was about a woman in the US who was given thalidomide in her pregnancy, and when her child was born with birth defects, she confronted her doctor, and her doctor completely denied having ever given her the drug, despite all the evidence making it clear that he had. I also read about a case that can only really be described as a cover-up where a doctor had been accused of distributing the drug during pregnancy and other doctors at the same hospital banded together to block the investigation and deny that thalidomide had ever been given out at the hospital. The challenges in proving that thalidomide had been taken in pregnancy also made it difficult for families to receive compensation or even recognition of what they had experienced. This was particularly true in cases where the drug led to miscarriage, as many women found it difficult to prove that they'd taken thalidomide during pregnancy and that their miscarriage was likely due to the impacts of the drug. In the aftermath of the scandal, governments around the world recalled the drug and issued public service announcements warning women of its risks. One notable exception was Spain, where the government stayed silent and it's believed that women may have continued taking the drug well into the 80s. Following the fallout from the scandal coming to light, a large criminal trial began in West Germany in 1968, with several Grunenthal officials being charged with negligent homicide and injury. But the trial ended up suffering many delays along the way and taking close to two years, which resulted in the trial ending without a finding of guilt. Grunenthal did settle with the victims in April of 1970 and paying 100 million Deutschmarks into a foundation for thalidomide survivors. The West German government also provided about 300 million Deutschmarks into the foundation, and this money was used to pay survivors of thalidomide a one-time sum as well as ongoing monthly stipends which are still in place to this day. The monthly stipends have gone up in value over time and are now paid entirely by the German government. Grunenthal did contribute an additional 50 million euros to the foundation back in 2008, but it wasn't until 2012 that the company made its first official apology for their role in the creation and distribution of thalidomide around the world. The 2012 apology was received pretty poorly by thalidomide survivors, many of whom felt that it was too little too late and that the company had failed to take sufficient responsibility for their actions in implying that nobody could have known the impacts that thalidomide would have. In the apology, the company maintained their stance that they had conducted all the relevant tests that were standard practice at the time and failed to admit any liability for the devastating impacts that the drug would go on to have. In reality, while Grunenthal did conduct animal testing on thalidomide before the drug was put on the market, none of the animal tests were actually done on pregnant animals to test whether the drug could pass the placental barrier. And as I mentioned earlier, the human study that would go on to justify the drugs used in pregnancy failed to administer the drug to a single pregnant woman. After the story broke, it came to light that the clinical trials that had been done on thalidomide were not rigorous. Placebo groups were not used, and documentation about the length of treatment was unavailable. It's believed that none of the studies were double-blind, and some studies failed to mention how much thalidomide had been administered. When speaking about these tests in the aftermath of the tragedy, Virukin Lenz, the German doctor who had sounded the alarm about thalidomide in November of 1961, said that the clinical trials had such little scientific value that they should never have been accepted for print. In terms of the government response to thalidomide, the outreach following the story led to some pretty serious regulatory changes around the world. In the U.S., the Kefauver-Harris Amendment went into effect in 1962, strengthening the authority of the Food and Drug Administration and making these changes retroactive so that all drugs that had gone onto the market between 1938 and 1962 had to be proven to be effective. A subsequent study found that about 40% of those drugs were not effective. In Australia, in response to mounting pressure in the aftermath of the thalidomide tragedy, an expert committee known as the Australian Drug Evaluation Committee was appointed in 1963. The committee voiced serious concerns over what they viewed as inadequate controls over the importation of new drugs, leading to the introduction of tougher drug safety laws in Australia in the late 60s and 70s. The tragedy also had global repercussions for the treatment of pharmaceuticals. I mentioned earlier that one of the reasons it took so long for the consequences of thalidomide to come to light was that individual reports of birth defects were not being aggregated and analyzed for patterns. In the aftermath of the tragedy, this emerged as a serious gap in the monitoring of medications for safety, leading to the creation of an international drug monitoring program in 1968. The program, established by the World Health Organization, aimed to develop international collaboration to make it easier to identify adverse reactions to drugs, with both Australia and the U.S. forming part of the inaugural cohort of countries. In the U.S., this led to the creation of the FDA Adverse Event Reporting System, an information database where consumers, doctors, and pharmaceutical companies are able to report adverse effects to drugs to support in the post-market monitoring of approved drugs. The Australian equivalent is the Database of Adverse Event Notifications, created in the late 1960s and still used today. These programs are useful because they allow for the detection of adverse effects that may not be picked up as part of clinical trials, such as those that take place over longer periods of use or within vulnerable populations such as children and the elderly who may be excluded from clinical trials. The clear limitation of these programs is that participation from doctors is voluntary, so under-reporting of adverse effects is virtually guaranteed. In Australia, the number of reports by medical practitioners is in decline, and studies suggest that less than 5% of adverse reactions are recorded globally, even in countries where reporting is mandatory. As I read about these programs, I found myself thinking about the times that I've experienced an adverse reaction to a drug and spoken with my doctor about it, and how I actually have no idea whether those experiences were ever recorded in the relevant databases. I wish I could say that the people responsible for the thalidomide tragedy were held accountable, that the survivors received justice, and that this was the last time that a company knowingly risked women's lives for the sake of profit. As you'll learn in future episodes, that's not the case. Medicine failed women 60 years ago and continues to do so today. Will medicine still fail us in another 60 years? Thank you for listening to Anecdotal. One particularly useful resource for today's episode was Jennifer Vandervest's book, Wonder Drug The Hidden Victims of America's Secret Thalidomide Scandal. Anecdotal is researched and produced by me, Victoria. Theme music is also by me. For more information or to join the conversation, check out the episode notes on Instagram at AnecdotalPod or visit anecdotal.com.au.